0: Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu, they're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Neil. Yeah. Not
1: Chuck. No, not Chuck today. We have
0: a new guest. Chuck is laid up with surgery. His second surgery in six months. I'm a little nervous about that. Is he getting elective surgery? I don't know. We're going to have to figure it out. But Chuck's at home, and Neil from Sacramento Don't Die is here.
1: Yeah, I'm here. I'm honored to be here at uh, at Aloe. This is a trip.
0: Yeah, and we have Evan, my partner in Aloe with Jared. He's not here. He doesn't talk much, so Evan is the mouthpiece. Hello. For Aloe. <laughs> right? We just had a big meeting up in Malibu about how Jared... Jared and Evan need to split up and do different things.
2: We do everything together. It makes zero sense. So we're, it's a waste of an entire human being. So. Yeah, and
0: I'm the chaser of people. So they were up in Washington, and I was chasing drug addicts through the streets of, what, Marina Del Rey? <laughs> and I was so <laughs> resentful. <laughs> like, why are both of them up there?
2: <laughs> Watching Netflix. I <having> know, <laughs> uh, right. Then.
0: So, but you don't, you were, Neil, you were asking, like, what is Malibu treatment? And yeah. really what we try to do is do real treatment in Malibu, which to me, real treatment isn't punitive, but it's honest and direct, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a power struggle. None of the rehabs I went to were power struggles. Exodus and Maria Del Rey it was not a power struggle. I came to them and I was seeking knowledge. So you're coming with your hat in your hand Want to know, how do I do this? Now, they may give me a solution I don't like, which is AA. But but I respect them, and I came to them. So there's this respectful relationship that doesn't exist in treatment anymore. No. Because the people aren't coming because they want to. And I think
2: the difference is back then, they would say, well, then leave. Yeah, they would say, then leave.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I spent the other day maybe an hour and a half with a client who was just convincing me and selling me on all the reasons why she should leave. Yeah. And finally, I just had to say, let's, let's cut the bullshit. I don't care if you leave or not. Let's spend the hour I've got with you on doing something productive. All right. they want to do is, uh, if you kowtow to my things that I'm begging you for, then I'll stay, as if that's doing me a favor.
0: Right. You know? Well, it's doing who you work for a favor. <laughs> <laughs> True.
1: <laughs> but, but
0: we've, you know, it's been, it's been hard. Like, you know, what, one thing we're bad at is we have a lot of our friends come through here, and they probably get a little extra, when I think about it, the person I was chasing was a friend of mine. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but because we're in the community, because we're addicts, and because they know so many people from Canada, and I know so many people from LA and New York, I mean, a lot of the clients here are friends, are friends of friends. And so we go the extra mile. But you're correct in that at a certain point, you're like, dude, I'm fucking tired of this. Like, oh, if you want to go home and start over in a month, it's fine with me, oh, right? yeah. A lot of the treatment centers that we criticize here on Don't Die don't do that. I don't think they even emotionally know the people well enough to have an emotion about them. You know, my, I won't name names, but one of the only oh, public cool. rehab companies. I don't think that <laughs> management even knows what they do for a living. Right? They're That's also fun. focused on the call center and getting the clients into the, I have this image of what, American Addiction Centers like because I've heard so much about their call center and how they place patients all across the United States. It's some combination of fantasy of CSI (laughs) and, and like Wall Street. It's like a matrix. (laughs) Like a matrix of, oh, the person's in Ohio. They can go right down to Indiana to our spot, and a blue light goes on, and the (laughs) drug addict goes in there. Wait, so, Bob, are you telling me that that guy
1: in Scrubs on TV isn't the actual (laughs) doctor? He doesn't care. How about this?
0: I'll tell people at home. I say it all the time. Doctors cannot represent rehab centers on television. So that's a guy named Ramsey. He's an acquaintance of mine. He's not a doctor. He's just a sober guy who... I don't want to tell too much about him, but he learned the rehab racket from Narconon, right, from Scientology. Mm. So he realized when he was doing the commercials in the beginning, like, you know, he just looks like any other sleazy rehab person. So he thought one night, what if I put a lab coat on a stethoscope? That would send a (laughs) signal that somebody important is telling you to go to this rehab.
2: And the funny <laughs> thing is, in real life, how many doctors walk around with their stethoscope? Stop. Let me listen to your heart. <laughs> it's <laughs> crazy. But uh, for years, Americans have called that
0: number and gone to not probably the greatest rehabs in America. Then, then treatment fails. Like, like it's going. To, treatment is gonna fail. But is it a failure if somebody learns something and they get right back up? And you know, I always consider. There's true and utter failures of treatment, but then there's successes that you didn't remain sober after, right? Sure. And Hazelden was probably the best at doing that. I don't don't even think they really talked about long-term sobriety. They talked about your disease and how powerful it was and how it's going to catch you if you don't pay attention and you don't acknowledge that it exists. There was more about the disease than it was about oh, if you do this, that, and the other thing, you'll be sober forever. So they knew
2: it was going to get you again. They knew
0: it was going to get you again, but you felt mm. informed and educated, and and it might take trial and error. I remember the first time I used After Hazel, and I say it's over eight months, and my friend Ross, who I met in Hazel, then was in town on a business trip, came to my house to visit. I opened the door, his eyes were pinned, and I was like, holy moly guacamole. <laughs> and I remember he said, yes. And I said, okay, and... My girlfriend was sober at the time. She was in another part of the house. We went right in the dining room and I snorted China White right off my dining room table. <laughs> right? And I was like, and then that realization like, holy fuck, this is what they told us would happen.
1: <laughs> it's all coming true. It's all coming true Shit.
0: before you even know it happens. And I just felt like, the modern ones, you've, you've been working in eight years. How long have you been working in treatment? No,
1: I've only been working in treatment, actually, about two and a half years. Oh, how
0: long have you been sober, though?
1: About four. Oh, four. Oh, I
0: thought it was longer than that.
1: So I talk a good game. <laughs> yeah, you sound so
0: professional. But but the idea was treatment became something different, where it, where it mostly focused on promising things it can't promise and delivering things that it's not going to deliver, rather than... Just love and compassion. That's what we try to do. Like have a sense yeah. of humor about it. It's not the end of the world. You might return to active use, but you'll have learned something. Like is this better? Is the two months you spent at Allo is it better? Do you have better memories of this two months than the prior two months or the two months you've had now of using? That should be a no-brainer that the sobriety should be better. I have a feeling that a lot of the rehabs like you can't really decide which is better <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> no well i mean you know i like to I, i'm a big graph guy so when i'm with the clients i like to draw on the, the like the uh, the whiteboard kind of like a stock market line I'm Like, so, you know it's going to go up and there's going to be down it's going to go up. but we're just trying to trend in a positive direction right. and that's what i really think sobriety's got to be like and recovery you know as long as you're continuously moving in the right direction you may you know may fuck up may have some bad moments but it's all about continuing to move forward
0: and and That I think will be now that all the kind of stuff's got sorted out and the bad actors are getting out. I think it'll go back to a more constructive, realistic thing of what are we trying to teach here? What are we trying to enlighten you to? And what's been great over the last 10 years, it's not this default that it was before of go to AA and all your problems will be solved. I think this psychobabble revolution and treatment just for to satisfy the insurance industry mm. has really done a good thing, which is make people think about trauma and personality disorder and psych co-occurring disorders and make you think about like you got a lot of things working against you. Whereas before nobody diagnosed me dual diagnosis. They just called me a drug addict and said, this is what's wrong with you. As time unfolded and I got sober for years and years, I realized like there's a lot more wrong with me than just Described in the big book of AA.
1: <laughs> right? Absolutely.
0: And that's when I learned about personality and why personality can serve you really well on one hand, but it won't serve you very well on another. One personality trait I have is narcissism. Mike loves to point out how much I talk. Um, it serves you well in communicating, reassuring people, being a go getter building things, taking care of people, thinking about that, but when it comes to intimacy and calming down and being a parent and being a husband, not so good.
2: It's really, really not so good. And I'm on the other end. (laughs) I don't say much of anything. On a further continuum. my wife's like, say something. (laughs) I don't know.
0: Everything seems meaningless. Evans is a dreamer, so one of the things that Aloe has, we always say, if me and Al, if me and Evan were really in charge, we would have been bankrupt a long time ago. There's Jared also, who's much more measured, and he's working as we speak. He's working as we speak, and so he's a dreamer. I'm more of like, you know, just lay it, just lay it all out and clinically talk and like what treatment is. Evans is. Like, we can do better than American addiction centers. We can revolutionize the industry. But to a visionary, a curmudgeon, and a real kind of calm, measured businessman, that's the only way Aloe has survived. Because I had a treatment center by myself, just curmudgeonville didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> but together we're like queen. <laughs> yeah, we're like, we're like a band, right? And, but Evan's dreams of like having 3,000 beds... We have a hundred beds, and it's like madness. How do you think thirty times this would work?
2: <laughs> you have to do it well. You can't. <laughs> satisfy, you can't. What a great answer! You can't sacrifice quality, and it, it's a good question. How do you do it? I think the right people running it, and and if there's one thing we've had that we've never lost, it's that passion that our staff have. The minute yes. you lose that. The game's over.
1: I would argue the uh, other critical component would be lots of nicotine gum. Right. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> lots of nicotine I gum for sanity.
0: It. Well, that, that but he's saying a thing. Like I would say, our techs are the best, right? So those are the people I've always felt spend the most time with the clients. How come they're the most unappreciated, right? And Evan and Jared didn't have a lot of experience with it. So they thought, yeah, they're the most, that makes common sense. See, a lot of things in the rehab industry don't make any common sense. So the people at the top who have no patient contact should make the most money, and the people that have the, the least patient contact make the most money. And the people with the most patient contact are treated like subhumans, right? They used to be grateful to have a... I remember when I first took that job, I always tell the story. Dr. Drew tells me he's going to get me a good job at Los Angeles Hospital. I was working at Millie's Pizza. I was the manager. I was Nikki Beat's boss. I'm pointing to Mike Mark because he knows who Nicky Beat is. Nicky Beat is a famous punk rock drummer who was in The Weirdos, The Cramps. He's a great, but he was, he worked at this pizza parlor, right, with me. And so I was his, like, I don't don't know, he couldn't be Nicky Beat's boss, but I was parallel more responsible than him. So, but we were... The kings and kings of Silver Lake, right? Everybody knew who we were. They tip us big when we deliver pizza and stuff. So Drew says he'll get me this great job as um, outpatient uh, uh, director of Los Angeles Hospital, and I had, I had quit working at Pasadena Recovery Center because I just felt like they don't appreciate tax. I remember I felt like the sex police. Did you work as a tech? Oh yeah, I, I started. had a flashlight. To... Oh, you gotta make my... sure they're not outside <laughs> fucking in the bushes. Oh, I you see. Say... Blue, blue light checking the sheets.
1: I actually sat in the bushes once in a folding <laughs> chair in a black jacket waiting for these two clients to hook up in the middle of the night. We used to call it Inspiration Point because that's where they would always go to fuck. We <laughs>
0: did. And so that I just felt that's so demoralizing. That's not what I want to do in my life. So Drew says, no, 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 I, this outpatient job, I'm going to get you this job. It's a great job. So I go do the interview. They don't tell me what the money is. Then I get the job. Then I go through this background check that took a long time. Then I finally get the job, and it's $16 an hour. I thought I misheard them. Oh, that's good. I'm the good. director of outpatient <laughs> at Los Angeles <laughs> Hospital. Oh, wait, that's pretty bad. And then... I was making like a 1000 bucks a week working at the pizza parlor. I was like, I make more money delivering pizza than I would running an outpatient program. There's something wrong with that. You could have been this. the most
2: famous pizza <laughs> delivery man <laughs> in history.
0: Well, the, in defense, my girlfriend at the time, Max, said, you know, it's going to run its course with everybody feeling bad that you're the pizza delivery guy and giving you a $20 tip. Right, because there was a lot of musician friends of mine lived in Silver Lake, and when I'd show up, they'd be like, "Oh, geez, Bob is delivering pizza. Like, <laughs> keep the change," and they'd give me like a hundred for eighty dollars worth of pizza, and be like, "Okay, thanks." Yeah, things look like real But That was not going to last forever. They're Big gonna be fish like Bob's in a little a, pond. I don't know. Bob's the pizza delivery guy. I give him two bucks like everybody else.
1: Uh, well, I remember when I first got hired as a tech. Um, the after the interview. She said, okay, the pay is $12 an hour. And then she looked down at my resume. She said, oh, you have a bachelor's degree? 14 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God.
0: So we tried to change that and treat people. We had this thing before the fire where all count, all techs were KDAC counselors. How many rehab centers have that? I mean, the fire wiped that away pretty much. But, you know, that's the most important people. They talk to the patients eight hours a day, three shifts a day, two shifts a day. Um and so that's one of the things that's unique about Alo. I would say, that to other treatment centers, is there's a great emphasis on line staff and who's really doing it. Um, you know, but you try to do the best you can. You know, it's not ideal. It wasn't ideal two years ago when they, if they didn't like what we were doing, they could just walk up the street to Cliffside.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and they did, and some would then walk right back
0: a couple months later, but... so. You know, there's uh, the fires really have devastated Malibu, but there was like six rehabs right in our neighborhood, right? That's
1: crazy. That is. There's
0: Creative Care, Cliffside, US. They
1: um, all burned down.
0: They all burned
2: down.
1: So what's going on in the Malibu treatment world? It's a
2: it's it's, it. It all burned down. Bob, how did
1: um,
0: you and Jared and Evan get hooked up to start Aloe House in the first place? It was the
2: yellow house. I, I, I can tell the story. So um, we have a common friend who suggested to Bob, refer your client to these guys. We were called Acadia then. Aloe was called Acadia. I think you'll like them. People have been trying to introduce us for years. So here was our first chance. In fact, I got a phone call. We did have two houses at the time. We had what we called the blue house. I remember I was over at the blue house. One of our clients called and said, uh, there's a new client here and uh, a guy named Bob Forrest. And I was like, oh, shit. And I raced back. So they walked in. There was no one there. You're probably wondering, like, what is this place? Like, no staff, nothing. I ran back, um, met you, and met the client. And, you know, I think we did well with her, all, all things considered. And you saw something in us, which I think at the time was the fact that we had, like, very few rules, Very few regulations. Open-minded. Open-minded, easygoing, kind. And I remember him telling me, all of these things you have and you probably felt embarrassed that you weren't like doing enough. And I was like, yeah. For the first time this resonated, Like I'm embarrassed because I thought we weren't doing it right or we weren't doing enough. But I think it was that gentle touch that Bob saw in us that we've since, I guess, perfected. And in fact, every rule that we currently have... I can ascribe to one particular person, one event. That's the, you know, Joe Blow rule because Joe Blow one night, you know, (laughs) did X, Y, or Z. So we never had rules for the sake of rules. Every rule was for a purpose.
0: I always felt like, you know, if you were were a nighttime tech, how hard is it to get people to go to sleep at 11? But then I started not enforcing it. And that everybody would go to sleep. Like, <laughs> and, the, and maybe the four or five that always argued with you, but the other four or five that backed up you arguing with the four or five, they, all, they went to bed. Because what are you going to do, sit around, smoke, and talk about drugs? You've done it all day long. Aren't you exhausted <laughs> they,
1: from, <laughs> from that? <you> love smoking <laughs> cigarettes.
0: Right? And, but that, that enforcement just of curfew, because I felt like these are people that don't go to sleep when people tell them to, probably when they're 11 years old. Now, all of a sudden, at 28, 30 years old, we're going to tell them to go to sleep now, and we think that's going to go well, right? So the idea was pick, pick something that's, that makes sense. So when we first had the rehab center, there was no lights out. But you can't watch television in the living room because other people are trying to sleep. That's just common sense. That's just kindness. That's just being cool to people. You can't be laughing outside smoking. Think about the other four people that are trying to sleep. And that worked magnificently, I think. And that's why Acadia that is mal- uh, alo now, it kind of took off. Because it was based on like just respecting one another. Not this war with the staff. Like, listen, I don't give a fuck what time you go to sleep, but you got four people trying to sleep, and you're out here playing grab-ass and laughing and giggling, trying to impress this girl with a folk song. It's fucking pathetic. Just go go to bed or just go and think about your life. And that, you know, I love confronting that. Whenever guys are playing folk songs, we had that in Silver Lake. I was like, oh, these are guys that shouldn't be playing folk songs too. (laughs) You know what I mean? But there's nothing they think impresses a rehab girl more than than playing a Nirvana song. (laughs) You know what I mean?
1: Oh, yeah. Anytime I have a client bringing a guitar, I know exactly what they're trying to do.
2: It's like a mating ritual and the kid works the kid works the next door neighbor into the song in like a hostile way. I get oh out, yeah. I get That's out of a movie yeah. I get out of a movie with my wife. My phone the is city lit.
0: council got involved with this situation. What? Yeah. I just sit <laughs> in,
2: I just sit in front of like a neighborhood council and <laughs> It was terrible. We actually turned that whole house
0: into an. He was threatening all- the next door neighbor who was telling him yeah. to shut up because he's trying to mack on a chick. It was terrible.
1: <laughs> I love addicts. That's what happens with rehab.
0: So, so we made it an all female house. That solved the problem.
1: Well, I would say that's really sounds like the embodiment of you know client centered care you know that they're going to know what's best for them. I guess. Right. And I mean, do you guys take away cell phones from the clients?
2: We try at least for the first few days. I mean, that's one of the sort of uh, signature, uh, I guess, that's experiences of the Malibu model. Yeah, yeah.
0: I don't, I don't mind the cell phones as much. Evan and Jared are harsher about it. I just think you have to use the conversation about the phone in a therapeutic way. Mm. Like, listen, what the example being? What news is going to come through your phone that's any good for you right now? You got a wife that hates you, you got a business part business is falling apart, you got creditors looking for you, you got maybe a relationship you want to get out of. Like what good? Why are we so glued to this drama that's in your phone? And oh, by the way, that's how you can order drugs too. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing you don't get a lot of good through it. And the one thing that you're trying to stop doing is That's probably the main instrument of how to access it. Oh, yeah. Right? And when you talk to adults that way, they go, yeah, maybe, yeah, you're right. Right? And they turn their phone in. Kids are never going to turn their phone in (laughs) because they think it's
1: an extension of them.
2: They're smart. They bring the dummy phone, then they hand that one in. Yes. (laughs) And they got the real phone in their pocket.
1: I've had guys come in with multiple Apple Watches charged so they can be in the bathroom texting and making calls on their watches.
0: Well, the real Nazi old-time referrals... Uh, that have been around forever always they don't like this phone thing our mentor who owned this place before doesn't like cell phones he actually quit the industry because of cell phones Um, I always tell them like listen you're talking about we're very tolerant that drugs get smuggled into a rehab (laughs) center Right? Yeah. So if you outlaw phones, they're just going to make phones the most valuable illicit commodity in a rehab center. I was in prison. I could make a call on a cell phone that somebody stuck up their butt to get <laughs> in there. But I mean, you can't stop. You know, it's the same old thing like build the wall and no drugs will come in. Are you kidding me? But if you're dealing as a clinician with a patient who's in contemplative stage of addiction, wants to stop. It doesn't see the the things they're doing that are creating it almost impossible to stop or stay stopped. That's our job, right? So the mm-hmm. phone conversation, the access to because anytime you say, "Oh, you're just going to buy drugs that way," they go, "Fuck you! I have no intention of buying drugs." Blah blah blah. But when you say, "Listen, everybody who's texting you hates you right now. Do you really want to just have that bombardment of ill will?" <laughs> like. Like, I'm sober 23 years and half the shit to come through my phone I don't want
1: to hear. It's all negative. <laughs> it's all negative.
0: <laughs> Anybody that's got an adult child will know anytime their name pops up, something is needed in an emergency situation. <laughs> right? I
1: need $50 now.
0: <laughs> now. Elvis is starting to do that to me. He's eight. He'll text me like, I really need to talk to you. And it's about some app that he needs to get when he comes to my house. Like, oh, okay. Well, we'll get it. I just want you to know. I'm like, I'm, I'm writing it down right now <laughs> with that fake thing. So we need to look for the Roboblock's new app. Because he thinks he'll forget. Mm. Right? So, I don't know. I just existed before phones and my life was... It was just... There was more room to breathe. Right? First time I ever got a company cell phone was at Las Tacinas, that's why I have two phone numbers. It's actually that phone, I think, the phone number, 20 years later, 15 years later. And I realized how cool it is. They trust me because if you're a junkie and somebody's buying you a phone and it's like, Bob, you're doing such a great job. Here's your company phone. You're just so proud of it. Until you realize, oh my God, now they expect me to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week
2: because they gave me a fucking phone. I think they're (laughs) they're making that illegal in some countries.
1: (laughs) Three (laughs) Three o'clock in the morning, they're calling Bob to tell him what's going on.
2: Yeah.
0: And and, uh, well, a lot of stuff happens at three o'clock in the morning. If you're a program director... That's a bad job. You know, nothing good can happen at three o'clock. In the yeah, morning. we
1: actually uh, where I work we call it the bat phone. So whoever's on, on duty, we have to you Oh know, you hand them off? Yeah, we hand oh, it off. Oh my god. So that way you're not completely tortured continuously. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, the overnight t- bat phone?
1: Yeah no, it's like twenty-four hours a day. It ends you're up kidding. being that phone, yeah.
0: For how, for and you you have it for 24 hours and hand it off?
1: Yeah, so and we're so we're a twenty-one bed facility. I looked last night to see what the calls were in there. We had a client who refused to wear pants or underwear. Or underwear? Yeah, completely. A guy or a girl? A guy. And so the uh, the tech, I guess, walked in and uh, found him completely in the nude spread eagle and uh, had to call the, the bad phone to reach out for assistance on what to do. <laughs> <laughs> she was quite upset, needless to say.
0: That, uh, that might need a splash of Depakote. <laughs>
1: Or as one of our nurses says, she wishes we could have Seroquel misters around the property just to calm everybody yeah. down.
0: Seroquel misters. Even just like water bottles. <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't have to complain, just get to his nostrils, spray him a little bit, and come back in 10 minutes, see if he got dressed. Problem is, you know, some of the clients
1: would set up a chair right under the mister. <laughs> there was the mister right yeah. there. The,
0: uh, Seroquel is an interesting drug. So. First off, when I worked, like all drugs are bad. No drugs in a rehab center. Cryhelp had no drugs unless it was like a really bad, parolee, psych, crazy person. So, But out of 100 clients, like only 10 were on meds. So I came up going through treatment where there was no meds. Then the first five years probably I was working, there was very minimal meds. And then meds just exploded. And Drew was very minimal meds. Right, And no meds discharge. He wouldn't discharge people on meds. Right, No one's going
2: to manage them anyway. Yeah, so. they're not going to
0: manage them. But then he just started prescribing right around the Celebrity Rehab time, 2007, 2006, Seroquel, all the time. And so on Celebrity Rehab, a client was trading to another client when they're in Sober House, that TV show. They're trading Seroquel for a ride down to the market. Oh, and I God. went to Drew, like, anything drug addicts trade for a service <laughs> has value. <laughs> it was
2: like, I'll give you four Seroquel's if you drive me to fucking bomb. And then you compare that to an Uber ride, and so you know that's $40. Is
1: there an equivalency table? Yeah. <laughs> right. like that.
2: The exchange value of Seroquel, $40. Was like, yeah, so there's um, something
0: about, you know, and Seroquel, like, what are they? They're sort of 25 milligram pills. So that's 100 milligrams of oil. Put that in, you know.
1: Well, it depends. They get they get to be big beefers. 200s, uh, I think. 200, right? I think even up to threes. Well, um, yeah, 200s are the big ones And boys. so
0: do you tell parents, don't look up that drug? Because parents will freak out when they read what uh, the category psychotic. of drug. <laughs>
1: Antipsychotic. i not psych-
0: My no. son's not psychotic. What are you people doing? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the thing is, I are the, are the clients are always just begging for more and more meds because they're like, I can't sleep. I'm like, no, that you're just not being knocked out. Like, you're used to doing, you know, like, half a gram of heroin a day, and when you close your eyes, you nod out. I'm I'm sorry. You need to lay in bed a little uncomfortable for a bit. It's just terrible. But they just want more and more meds. I'd say it takes our staff for 21 clients. It takes them two and a half hours to give out all the meds because the clients are taking so much medication.
0: So the question is, is medication-assisted treatment working?
1: That's a great question.
0: Right? It's coming. M-A-D, they call it, right? M A T. M A T. I'm not a big initials guy. I always, I forget the, what they stand for. Somebody said MSO to me the other day, and I was like trying to figure it out. And then I'm, finally, I'm so finally so old, I don't care if people think I'm stupid. I said, what is MSO? And they were like, it's a managerial system operator or whatever. It's the thing that gets you, <laughs> you licensed and all that kind of stuff. Never heard MSO. of MSO. Huh? So, but MAT, medication-assisted treatment, the insurance industry is big on, right? Oh, yeah. Um, now is that the same, this is something I've always wanted to know, is that the same as replacement therapy? Is, is replacement therapy a part of the bigger umbrella of MAT?
2: I think it's what they're talking about, but I also think they're talking about even managing psychiatric conditions with medication, but what it's code because that's what they claim they're talking about, but what they're really talking about is replacement, I think. Right. It's code.
0: But, but the the people aren't responsible enough to take their meds. That's what I always kind of like. If you've got a typical discharge from Los and at the end when I was working there in 2009, 2010, these people have gone, they came in on heroin or alcohol, they're going out on three meds minimum, sometimes five. How is somebody who, who you know, can't really function in life very well supposed to? Now, I understand the meds that you give them, ideally, they would follow through that prescription. But to re-up it and keep track of it and lifelong...
2: Apheca, like when I take my vitamins, it lasts for like three yeah. weeks and then I forget.
1: <laughs> well, it's like if if you don't treat the actual issues that are causing, you know, the, uh, the substance use disorder, I would say, then really what... I mean, the clients are not going to change their behaviors. I had somebody who was on, who left on Vivitrol and they realized he couldn't get high. So he just started smoking meth. He's like, well, I can't, you know, I can't take opiates or I can't do this anymore, but I can do coke and I can still do, you know, smoke some meth. It there's, didn't make a difference. There's there. no
2: Suboxone for meth yet. No. There will be. There will be. <sighs> there,
0: you know, but that, that's why I just think that what was wrong with me and what's wrong with a lot of my friends can't be fixed by people who don't understand it and i'm convinced that purdue pharmaceutical doesn't understand it doctors don't understand it the sb the company that invents box owned doesn't understand it most people i meet that are well-intentioned rehab operators don't understand it it's love it's the ability to attach and detach that's broken right Mm -hmm. and when you bring it up to people like that like the best example I knew, a mom who finally, when I got to know her well enough, she said, "I've never felt like I love my kids like I should." And I go who's who's judging that? You love your kids like to the full capacity of your ability to love. If you want to feel a deeper, richer love for your children, then you'll have to dig into that and be honest about that and work through that, right? but to just always feel ashamed Mm. you're gonna have to fucking medicate that if you're always feeling ashamed that you don't connect that you don't love that you don't feel loved that's really i think the thing that is the trauma creates in individuals who then have substance use disorder (laughs) 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 and then you know i argue was it in the sam podcast you listen to it about substance use disorder and i kept saying well that suggests that people use substances logically isn't it with the sam guy from dreamland i said
2: it was it toward the end yeah you didn't listen to it all the way through I Still, it's on pause
0: i'm gonna <laughs> so so probably the greatest podcast i've ever done and though don't die has been great and your don't die has been great and the milwaukee don't die was i got to interview the guy who wrote dreamland a couple weeks ago right oh, rad it was rad what we were talking about today, he doesn't have the passion that I thought he would have for it. You know what I mean? He's very cut and dry about it. It's very sterile, the way he talks about it. It's not emotional, the way we talk about it. Because, I don't know, he doesn't... Though he's seen a lot of people that he reported on um, children dying, he never had to call their parents and tell them their child is dead. That was the sense, and I tried to say that. like I don't think he really had to call a parent and say... Your kid's dead. I have. So I am very angry at Purdue. Right? Well, I don't think anger is a good thing. Well, you're wrong. It's a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) Anger gets shit done. I would agree. (laughs) Right? Focused anger. Motivated to change things anger. If you don't think Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were angry about segregation, you're fucking naive. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? So great things happen from... An, an, a, just a completely enraged kind of focus. Like those moms the, who fight. Right, the moms. Day. You guys have moms up there that are organized that their kids have died?
1: No, no, not at all.
0: Orange County, they, these moms did incredible things. And up in Seattle, um, the thing called Battlefield Addiction or, yeah, and then these moms who they all lost their children from one fucking doctor. And they made sure, and they held, and it took them years to get her prosecuted, and she went to prison for a long time. But they had to get angry. Their children died for no fucking reason because of this corrupt, disgusting doctor. And she was trying to hide behind every doctorism there is. And finally, the uh, Orange County DA just said, no, let's prosecute her for murder, and let's see what happens. Right? And that was like really three moms did that. And so. Well,
1: it's like the Parkland teenagers, you know, they got really angry about that. And I mean, they made a huge. I mean, gosh, I mean, people all around the country finally started having a conversation about gun violence because they got fucking angry and were trying to do something about it. But
0: here's the gun violence thing. I always say three times as many people died of drugs last year as died from guns. I mean, who's going to start advocating for these murderous doctors and this uh, this disgusting pharmaceutical you know plague on our society finally a little bit's being done Mm -hmm. but certainly not with the passion that the gun violence stuff is done right because it's so i see very much parallels but so many people see it as this really Black and white issue. If we had less guns, and we had gun control, this wouldn't happen. I think I don't know about that. I there's think the it would, stigma. What would happen?
1: There's still the stigma about addiction. And when I really want to get people to drop them down into a sobering state, I will tell them about that. You know, more people are dying monthly of opioids than are than we're dying of AIDS at the height of the AIDS crisis. Right. And that kind of puts it into perspective for, for for people. And we people suddenly start to realize that. Nothing is being done nearly on this, a national level. Like today there was an article in the Daily Mail about the Sackler family. You know, I know right. your, your favorites. Oh, we,
0: switched, we ch- exchanged it at 6 a.m. this morning.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, that, that, they're, that they're, the lawsuit against them is finally being unsealed. Well, yeah, I think people need to know about their their dirty business and what's going on. It's their absolute, emails, the yeah. emails they sent. Oh, trying to play it off that Oxy was going to be less... Uh, Less potent than morphine, or that when less I less
0: addictive than
1: heroin and all oh, well, kinds. Oh, just absolutely disgusting. Or that um, there was that one study um, where basically there was had been like a, a half page blurb one doctor had written about that if. Oxy- OxyContin was taken in the right way that it was going to have less than a 1% chance of, of addiction. addiction yeah. And they pulled on yeah. that one statement, pulled it completely it was, out yeah, of context. Ameri- he just made
0: it up. Yeah, no, it was in the American Medical Journal. That guy's getting sued. The guy who wrote that paragraph. Oh, really? His life is destroyed. <sighs> well,
2: it wasn't based on any research, was it? Or
0: Yeah, I think it was minimal research. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was a side note to his main theory, mm-hmm. and they just, Purdue pulled that and
2: made that, you know, blasted that in their marketing campaigns. But I'm kind of like where you are with guns, with drugs. If we take away all the drugs, I'm convinced people will find glue and paint or gasoline. Right.
0: There's, a, there's, a, there's something there's else something going on. There's at the heart of American life. I think you see it in politics. I think, I think you see it in the apathy of millennials. People don't like what's going on, but they don't know how to change it. And that's, I believe, because they don't know history. Right? Mm -hmm. Lots of things have changed just within my lifetime. When I was born, black people didn't have the right to vote. How about that? Right? We were just talking, when Bill Wilson was born, women were property and didn't have the right to vote. This guy that we all bow down to is the wisest man who ever lived. How do you think his feelings about women were? To the Wives
1: is one of the craziest (laughs) pieces of literature ever written. Would would I sponsor guys? You know, I hear people say, read the first 164. I say, read the first 101.
0: (laughs) To the Employers is illegal. It's illegal (laughs) direction right now. I'll give you an example. So I was a part of gps GS, gs what is g when they were redoing the fourth edition in 99 90 gsa or g, g, gsr right yeah. and i just simply went to an la meeting because i was the representative of silver lake and i went and i said is you know they were having suggestions of stories for the big book and i said could we suggest that we pull to the employers and to the wives out of the book and just within liberal fucking punk rockers with tattoos on their necks. were are like, how can you dare say that, Robert Forrest? That is the word of God, man. <laughs> like, Because to the employers, a friend of mine had this thing happen where she tried to go back to Nordstrom's. Nordstrom's was a, how they're in business still is a miracle to me. They were the last to catch on to junkiedom. them. So, and I was doing it with these oh, friends of mine dude, I where used to... you could just steal something out of Nordstrom, walk up to the front with no receipt and say he wanted your money back and they would do it. Oh, and you it forgot to, like to get... take the tag off. <laughs> <laughs> they oh. didn't. They didn't have those things no. then.
1: Oh, when when I used to, when I would need money for dope, I would go through my closet and take all of my pants. Like, well, okay, I've had these for a couple of years. Take them down to Nordstrom's. Immediately <laughs> walk Nordstrom's out with a thousand dollars.
0: Crazy what they would do. So a friend of mine got sober, and she was sober years and years and years. She goes back to Nordstrom's. She wants to pay it back. Her sponsor directed her, and the guy's like she went to a, a store manager and said I'm an AA now and I would like to I, I used to um, shoplift from Nordstrom's all the different ones in San, Los, Los Alamitos and here and, and uh, I want to pay back the money that I stole and the guy's like come again <laughs>
2: you must get that all the time
0: So then they they didn't know what to do, and she kept pushing, and so they had to call the police. Uh. Like, this woman's confessing to stealing. Like, what is that? And when you read to the the employers, like, hey, you know, people steal from you, and you're just going to get together like two old white guys and just (laughs) forgive them. You know what I mean? If you came to me when I had an executive position at Los Encinas and told me that you stole from Los Encinas, if I didn't directly report that to HR department, I could lose my job. Oh, yeah. But what the fuck are they directing people to do that for? Because Jesus wrote the first 164 pages of the big book. It's ridiculous.
2: For the doctor's opinion, what we know about, you know, brain science now. In fact, I was um, first time I heard Dr. Gabor Mate speak. It was at the Ikipa, which is young people in a that was like eight years ago. I was almost yeah. young, but I, I was there. And uh, you were there. there was, it, was, it was on the schedule, and it was called the doctor's opinion. He's speaking; it was very captivating. And I remember there was a Q and A at the end, and someone stood up and um, said, "So, if if I understand you correctly, if we were to resolve our trauma, do years of therapy, meditation, yoga, volunteering, whatever, and we were resolved, then we could drink like a normal person." And he says, "Yeah." The whole room just about fell over. I mean, no no one, This was, you're not allowed to say that. He says, no, I wouldn't recommend it, you know, because who knows? And right. as we know, is trauma really ever Why? totally resolved? But
0: but, the, 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 A, that's,
2: a junkie would always want to know if that's
0: an option. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I love the person who asked that question, and I <laughs> identify with them tremendously. But the the way that it was posed to me i mean we talk about it like there's a certain thing that that gives us extra motivation to so, sober how hypocritical would we be if we owned a rehab and we fucking are drinking it's Ugh. just i know a lot of people do it <laughs>
2: <laughs> no but you're asking these kids or young people or older people to be totally abstinent and then you aren't what right do we have it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? But we have a lot of competitors
0: that do. And then I confronted one of them. He said, I'm not an addict. And I said, then what the fuck are you doing in this business? You know, this, this was started in this altruistic way as this extension of help because the psychiatric community realized they don't know what to do with these drug addicts. It was really in the 50s and 60s with drug addicts. Like, only drug addicts seem to be able to communicate with drug addicts. Right? And so that's where this wellspring of, you know, Phoenix House and Impact and Cry Help and Sin and On all started Damn. with addicts helping addicts, Delancey Street. So And it was effective, and it succeeded at much higher rate than the alcoholic treatments for alcoholics that were done in Hazelden and the Minnesota model. The original programs of... Drug addiction, which were Synanon and Phoenix House and Delancey Street, had 50% success rates.
1: It's incredible.
0: And somehow now the non-addict community knows how to deal with addicts. There's something about addicts helping one another through this thing that's magical. And that's gotten a little lost with the HMO system and Parity Act and insurance and all that. But But really that valuable thing of how do you trust someone who doesn't know what it's like to be and I always describe this. I was relapsing one of my last times after being sober and I was driving to Frenchie's house. Everybody knows Frenchie. We got to have Frenchie on here. Mike, we got to have Frenchie on the podcast. I just realized it. he was me and Mike's drug dealer for like 20 years. (laughs) He's a good guy now. Isn't he he
1: described in your movie as fucking Frenchie?
0: (laughs) My fucking drug dealer. Yeah, that's it. Right. So Frenchie, I'm going to his house, I got money, I'm going to use, I'm talking to myself, crying, saying, don't do this, Bob. Only junkies understand that. Because psychiatric community goes, that person needs to be on a hold, they're a threat to themselves or others, they're not <laughs> in their right mind, they don't, they're not acclimated to time and place. I definitely <laughs> wouldn't have passed, I always know who's president, but what day it is and what year it is, it's a little foggy.
1: You know, it's funny, though, you bring that up. That is a question that I've been wondering about if we need to alter, because lately I had a client who I was asking who was kind of out of it. Who was the president? And she started screaming Trump and just had a breakdown. More escalated. Crying. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: To Call the paramedics. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: true. Trump is traumatizing the mentally no. ill.
1: You know, I actually did have a client. Um, A couple months ago When I I was asking her For what her motivations What her reasons were She said that um, Watching the news constantly And Trump was a huge reason Why her addiction Had gone out of control
0: I believe that depression It's raised depression For sure I think that You you know MSNBC is a little addictive You know They tell you what you want to hear I Evan and Jared Because it's true (laughs) We talk constantly via text And I am I took a Took a, a what a challenge from a friend of mine who's very, much more conservative, very conservative. Not he was a Trumper, but now he's not a Trumper. That's why I know Trump's not going to last, because the people who really brought Trump over the finish line aren't aren't they? They know they've made a mistake. He lost Wisconsin right? already, according yeah. to a story today. So so. But my conservative friend said, you know, you live in a, in a L.A. liberal fucking bubble, just the way yeah. that you're accusing me of living in a Fox News bubble. Why don't I'll, I'll make a challenge with you. I'll watch 30 minutes a day of MSNBC if you watch 30 minutes a day of Fox. Ooh. That was a hard one the first couple of days. <laughs> like, and I kept checking with them. Are you really watching MSNBC? Because this is fucking hard. <laughs> right? But then I realized so much of their stuff is fluff. It really is. A lot of stuff about the Kardashians and just fluffy nothingness stories. And there are always stories about any time white people been done wrong. Always, right? And it's not as much gung-ho Trump stuff as you'd believe if you really watch Fox. Now, Fox and Friends is, and Hannity, of course, is, and Tucker Carlson is. But the regular Fox, this guy I know, Greg, has a show on Fox, it's not really all Trump bandwagon stuff, but liberals don't know that because we don't dare
1: watch it.
2: <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just read that interview with Tucker Carlson that actually does relate back to addiction and even what we were talking about, where he wholeheartedly agrees with Elizabeth Warren, who wrote a book with uh, her daughter yes. called The Two Income Trap, yeah. where and, and Gabor Mate, tying it all together, actually believes one of the major contributors to addiction is the fact that since... I guess the end of the post-war boom, both parents are working, at least one job nowadays. Um, and in fact, if you work at Walmart, you're also getting food stamps. But leaving kids to basically raise each other, I, I know even I was raised like that, kind of Lord of the Flies. Um, there's no, that that kind of belonging or guidance and direction that we used to get from parents and from elders, it's, it's just gone. And he actually says he would support Elizabeth Warren. So there you go. And in fact, Kamala Harris, her platform now um, is to uh, create a country where only one parent has to work. I mean, can you imagine that and the kind of bonding that that primary caregiver could have with their child, theoretically anyway, if only one parent had to work?
0: Yeah, and that, but the question is, do people feel it's rewarding to raise children, right? I don't think mm-hmm. my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I don't think she questioned that, whether she was. it was rewarding. I think she felt It was her purpose in life it's different if you're constantly deciding whether this is rewarding for you that's kind of a narcissistic kind of place to be I'm with my kids more than probably any most dads because I'm semi-retired or whatever but because I enjoy it there's ways I could avoid it if I didn't like it I just like it right and so that idea of like, one parent can stay home while somebody else is fulfilling what they feel they want to fulfill, right? My wife went on her education. So I was staying home, and my wife's going out and about for six hours a day. It felt like a perfect thing, right? But when both have to work just so they can pay the mortgage and the food and the, and the rent, and the, that, that that is a no-win society. Right. And I think a lot of our clients that you've dealt with, uh, especially the insurance different population, I just figure if you talk to them enough and get to know them enough, you can realize nobody's ever really cared about them. No, that's the fucked up thing about addiction in America. How can you grow to be 18 or 19 or 20 years old and never have a sense of people care about you? Right. And that because I've always I come from a different generation where anything is possible. They come from a generation where nothing is possible. Nothing's no. ever going to work out. And so we have to really change our society and also change our client's vision of what's possible. Right? I always point to two clients we had, their great success stories. They have their own rehab up the hill. And they run this rehab and it's good and we refer to them and it's cool. And I think both those guys didn't give a fuck about nothing five years ago when I met them. So it's possible to change young people's opinion of what's possible, inspire, create, you know, ambition.
1: You know, though, Bob, what you're talking about with people not feeling love, that is the exact reason why the 12-step world can be so helpful. It could be so It helpful. could be because, you know, the the opposite of addiction is not abstinence, it's connection to other people. It's right. connection with yourself, connection with another person, and if they can get that love and support... From other pe- other junkies, from other alcoholics, going through the same troubles that they have, that there's hope.
2: Johan Hari, and I was disappointed to hear that Drew thought he went too far. I I think he doesn't go far enough. Which which one? Johan Hari, the rat part guy. So oh, yeah, the yeah. opposite of addiction is, is connection. connection. Right. That's like yeah. our motto: connection, not control. We we believe the same thing.
0: When I went to the beginning, my first introduction to AA was. Magnificent. It was people I admired. It was people that were cool to me. It was people that are inviting. They didn't tell me what to do. Um, They didn't give unsolicited advice. They were welcoming. They asked if I wanted to go eat. They were engaging. That planted a seed in me that this is cool, right? I don't know that that's the seed we're planting anymore. With Mm. Young people and the rules and regs and you got to do this and you got to do that And that's one of the things I want to push back especially in southern california against like we need to just be cool to people Like why what is so hard about that? Why do you always have to have an answer for someone you don't even know why don't you ask yourself that question? Mr 20 years sober big shot guy, you know what I mean? Why do you have to always have an answer? Why don't you just listen? Why don't you just be kind? Why don't you just go record shopping? Why don't you just check in on them, text them that you love them and care about them? Why has it always got to be big shotism and telling people what to do and always having an answer? I don't have any answers. I got the answers for me. Like nobody could stay sober the way I do. Nobody right i don't believe in god i don't believe in half of the fucking bullshit of it all i believe in love and compassion for other people i believed in it when i was loaded i believe in it now i'm cantankerous argumentative opinionated i don't that's who i am there's nothing wrong with that the world needs people like that just as it needs people who are peacemakers and lovey-dovey fucking bullshit That's the idea that we're all individuals and we can be ourselves. It's getting lost in AA, lost in our society. I have an Uncle Woody, my favorite uncle. He was a near-to-well drunkard fucking idiot who was homeless half the time. He's my favorite uncle because he was so loving and gregarious and funny and charismatic and, and fun and energy and positivity and... You know, he always, you know, he always used to tease me about this girl, Nancy Crowhurst that lived next door to us that I when are you going to marry Nancy Crowhurst, Bobby? I was like eight years old. I was like, stop talking that way, Uncle Woody. (laughs) You know what I mean? You could Facebook her now. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder where Nancy Crowhurst is. But the idea was that Uncle Woody was a member of our family equal to my dad who was a businessman, equal to my Uncle Mel, who was a, another very productive person, equal to anyone. There wasn't a pecking order of who's more important in the Forrest family. We were a family. And now we have this pecking order, especially in 12-step. If you've been sober yeah. a long time, you're, you're up higher than other people.
2: And that wasn't there originally. Like, Can you imagine if Bill Wilson had come to Dr. Bob's house? Dr. Bob said, I'll give him five minutes, 15 minutes, or whatever yeah. he says. And he come, started giving them all the answers, telling them what to do, all the things that they do in drug treatment. That's what he
0: said he wouldn't listen to. Oh, no, I know. That's what Bill Wilson told the woman that was setting up the the meeting. Listen, if he's going to come here and preach a bunch of stuff at me, I don't want to meet with him. Dr. Bob said what he didn't want, what no alcoholic wants, what no drug addict wants. And now everybody thinks that's what you do to drug addicts.
1: That's what they do. I mean, there's few things that steam me as much as someone in a meeting who starts off their share by saying, what you need to do is this. And how do you know? You don't know me. Um, As as well as the the sponsors and people who walk around like the second coming of Christ. I had a girl, a client I was working with the other day, and she goes to call her sponsor on the phone. Her sponsor drops her and says, that's it. You didn't call me two days in a row. Fuck you. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the girl's literally crying, tears running down her face. She's she's about to be homeless. has nowhere to go. And she's. I just needed someone to talk me off the ledge. She called her back and, you know, called the sponsor back and said, hey, I really don't appreciate that. I mean, I was doing some, you know, she did some assertive communication. I was really impressed with her. Says all this. The sponsor says, I don't give a fuck about your feelings. Hangs up the phone on her. Yeah.
0: So we've got to stop that and we got to fight about, fight back against that. And, and I really believe it's going to change because... There's two ways this goes, and we were talking about it today. I believe AA will be gone within 40 years. I might not see it. Evan definitely won't see it because he's much older (laughs) than Jared. But Jared will live to see a world where there is no AA. And I compare it to my dad My dad and all his brothers. My dad had nine brothers, eight brothers. And um, they all fought in World War II except for a couple of them. And they all went to the VFW, the Veterans of Foreign Wars. That's what it was, VFW. There was one in Palm Desert where, we, where I grew up. There was one in Inglewood. There was one in Panorama City. All my uncles always, they, that's where they went. That's where they healed with each other. That's where they had camaraderie. The VFW was the center of every municipality in America. There's one in Banning, California, right, the, on the way to Palm Springs. They were everywhere, and they were robust, vital parts of American culture. They no longer are. You go into them, there's hardly anybody there. There's two or three people there. um, And there's no Iraqi and Afghani soldiers there because it fit that generation. If AA doesn't evolve, if AA doesn't change, if AA doesn't embrace millennials, it will die. And Bill Wilson wrote that in 1967, I believe it's happening in our lifetime, and AA people need to wake up, because look at the room that you go to. I just spoke at a meeting about six or eight months ago in Beverly Hills. It's the first meeting in AA on a regular basis in Los Angeles, started in 1946. I go there, I'm thinking, like, I'm the main speaker on Friday night at Rodeo. I gotta fucking get my shit together here. I gotta, you know, and I was practicing in the week during the shower, like, hey, I'm gonna say something funny, I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna say that. I walk in there, there's like, 40 people there. That used to be huge. There used minute. to be hundreds of people there. Hundreds. And if that doesn't wake those members up that something is going wrong, I don't know what will. Now, interestingly, I went to Milwaukee, filled to the rafters, and, the, and it, it has a welcoming openness, a, a tolerance, and not preachiness that I hadn't seen here in LA in years in Milwaukee, and that's why the Milwaukee guys kind of sometimes don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) I think it's maybe a California thing, or it's definitely a Los Angeles thing, this preachiness and all this kind of stuff, and this knowing. I think it's just
2: like... Having all the answers.
0: Having all the answers. Like, you know, I always say, I've been married three times. Like, Like, you know, I don't know how to live life. I shouldn't be giving advice to people. I just know what happened to me. What I did. So I share my experience, strength, and hope with a sense of humor and an ease and a love and a kindness of what worked for me, what happened to me, right? And part of now what happened to me was that about eight, ten years sober, I got disillusioned by it and I just took a step back from it. I'm still involved in it, but it's not my religion. It's not my life. Anytime I have a new person in my life, I always go every day. I know, you know, I want to introduce them to this solution. I think when you're newly sober, it's the only game in town right? Yeah. But you have to brief your clients already. Like, don't let people tell you what to do. I always tell my clients, and maybe you can spread this in Sacramento. If somebody with time asks you how much time they have, ask them the same question. So if they say, hey, how much time you have say, how much time do you have? If they ask, do you have a sponsor? Ask, do you have a sponsor? <laughs> Whatever question they ask, ask it back at them. It pisses them off. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because, you know, they, they, they love pouncing on you and say, hey, have you got a sponsor? And then you're either, you either do or you don't. But either way, it's a lose. Whatever you answer is is going to be.
2: Kind of. I remember it was my very first meeting and I was being paraded around and I was the most popular person. There. I've never been to such an exciting meeting since. I was, you know, <laughs> It's your first it's meeting. Downhill. Everyone's kind of pouncing on me. And um, I remember I, everyone seemed really nice. I was at the log cabin, kind of a famous LA meeting here. And I didn't know what to say. And I said, well, this is so great. I I feel like it's the first day of the rest of my life. And I was like, whoa, 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 take it easy. And that's when I first realized, okay, there's things you can say, (laughs) and there's things you can't say. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, that was uh, the slogan at Synanon, I later found out.
0: Oh, really? Yeah.
2: Maybe that's some old (laughs) there.
0: Do you know about Synanon?
1: I do, yeah. Oh,
0: I love it. I love Synanon. I remember actually. I want to bring it back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Minus the murdering people. <laughs>
2: <laughs> for the
0: snakes in the yeah.
2: mailbox, Chuck Dedrick.
0: For Diedrich. any of you that want to really know what drug, to how it began... Go on YouTube and type in "synonym" and then it's Chuck... What Chuck his, Diedrich. Chuck, Chuck Diedrich Lectures. He really tells you what addiction is in those weird lectures, and he's got his pants tucked <laughs> way... His pants pulled way up over his belly. I love that look. That was a popular look in the late 50s, early 60s. My dad had that look. The belt goes right across the big belly. Now you can
2: strap your cell phones <laughs> on there. <laughs>
0: With Chuck Diedrich, he just lays it all in line. We're liars, bullshit artists, and blah, 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 blah. nobody loves more than us, and blah, 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 blah. And he just like, it's the greatest energy in the world. And it transformed people's lives, and it revolutionized drug treatment in America. Nixon talked about it. Nixon said, this is the greatest revolution for addicts in the history of America,
2: Synanon. And it was created because AA wouldn't accept them, so they were suffering from this guy then, because they wouldn't change and adapt and (laughs) absorb him, created a monster in a way, because he was a maniac. There's actually a direct line from uh, Synanon. I mean, so many people were trained there and then went on to open other centers. So there's actually a direct line from Synanon through in the late 60s, this hospital in Pennsylvania, Eagle something Hospital, straight to Hazelden. And they actually used the therapeutic community model, which was this harsh confrontational model right up until the 80s when to treat young people who they hadn't been seeing a lot of Break down. These, these young hippie kids they didn't know how to treat they used the therapeutic community chuck dedrick model and uh they eventually denounced it in the 80s because it was kind of turning ugly like it tends to do
0: well i i witnessed it probably in the 90s delancey street still does it in hollywood and so we were doing a benefit concert for them. They said, do you want to sit in on a group? And I was like, yeah, that was this huge group room with like 100 guys in it. And one guy in the middle and they just went around the room and attacked him and told him, you're fucking lazy. I work with you at the Christmas tree lot and you're a fucking lazy bitch. <laughs> and like, and it was just like, this is rad. Part of you thinks like, <laughs> <laughs> part, part of you, part of, well, immediately I'm a junkie. So I thought I could survive that. <laughs> I could be in there. Because you're just thinking, can you fucking take a hundred people just ripping you to shreds and just look them in the eye and not cry and not break down? And I know I could have.
1: <laughs> That's my <laughs> core.
0: But, you know, now we've gone too far the other way. How are you feeling today? Are you feeling okay? Can I help you in any way? Can, it, are you okay? Oh, do you want to... Oh, you don't want to... Can oh, I get you a different not, chair? Right, different chair? <laughs> do you not like this room? I always tell this story. Evan wasn't there, but he heard about it within minutes. I was doing a lecture and just doing a basic amygdala, basic brain functioning in the addict motivational system lecture, right? This little girl, like 19 years old, raised her hand and goes, I go, yeah? yeah." And she goes, I just disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't didn't say the most compassionate retard to her. I said, Who gives a fuck what you think? (laughs) And oh my God. I I didn't mean it to sound as mean as a, I guess it did sound. I meant it more as a flip way, like I would say to a friend, like, who gives a fuck what you think?
2: Well, <laughs> but that's not how 19-year-old girls hear things. Bob called me on the way home. He's like, the group turned on me tonight. It got really bad. I was like, oh, no. And I felt bad for him. I said, I'm so sorry. He goes, no, no. It was my fault. I just, because I just,
0: I don't know. I just said the wrong, I, I, like, But I did want to communicate to her, like, okay, you have an opinion, that's very important. Obviously, somebody's diluting you into believing because your family has money that your opinion matters. I'm sorry that the recovery industry is so disgusting and greedy, <laughs> and you've been led to believe that your opinion matters to anybody. <laughs> <right>? oh, <yeah. laughs> because she had been to a bunch of treatment centers, I think she went to another one. But, uh, you know... But I also felt like that's how you connect with somebody like that. I know what she's like. She's a fuck you person. No one had ever said fuck you back to her. Probably not. Right? And so, you know, hopefully she's a drug counselor
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, this makes me think sometimes when I want to say risky things to clients, my move is I'll say, Bob Forrest says. Who gives a fuck what you think? Well, then you could even
2: get more creative and say, well, if Bob Forrest were here, he might say. Yeah, he always blame me.
1: Well, I actually have a picture up in, in my office of Bob with his arms crossed. Uh, <laughs> being it, grumpy. I, it, like, this grumpy old look, and then underneath it, I just have it written, um, don't die before you figure out the solution. Yeah. Bob Forrest. I don't know if Bob actually said that quote directly. <laughs> yeah,
0: I said, it, I said it in the end of the movie. Well, yeah. I think it does end up all right if you don't die. That's how the don't die started. But it really started when I had to tell... A couple of parents with their kids were dead. Like that's like no drug counselor should have to be doing that because we're more their parents than their parents are. That's something's wrong when we're reparenting 30-year-old adults. You know what I mean? So we got to always be aware of our connection and and how much influence we have and our limitations. So until next time, um, don't die. Is that what the theme is, Mike? Evan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Bob. All right, Neil, thanks so much.
1: Hey, thanks, (laughs) Bob. That was fun. Thank you later. Don't die.
0: Good night. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.